King of kings and Lord of lords, glory, hallelujah. I heard a clap in there. All right, let's do it with the clap. Ready? King of kings and Lord of lords, glory, hallelujah. Again, king of kings and Lord of lords, glory, hallelujah. Second part is like this. Jesus, Prince of Peace, glory, hallelujah. Can you handle it? Jesus, Prince of Peace, glory, hallelujah. All right, the whole thing, the first part twice and then the second part twice. It's the whole song. Ready? King of kings and Lord of lords, glory, hallelujah. King of kings and Lord of lords, glory, hallelujah. Jesus, Prince of Peace, glory, hallelujah. Jesus, Prince of Peace, glory, hallelujah. Okay, now, this is side number one, and this is side number two. Now, you guys are doing great. If I can say one thing, I know you can be louder than that. That's all I'm going to say. This is side number one. This is side number two. So side number one is going to begin, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, glory. And side two is going to be quiet until they go to the second part, and then you start with the first part, and we'll sing it as a round. Can we do that? We'll make this short and sweet and powerful, and then we'll get in the Word of God. Side one, ready? King of kings and Lord of lords, glory, hallelujah. King of kings and Lord of lords, glory, hallelujah. Jesus, Prince of peace, glory, hallelujah. Jesus, Prince of peace, glory, hallelujah. King of kings and Lord of lords, glory, hallelujah. King of kings and Lord of lords, glory, hallelujah. Jesus, Prince of peace, glory, hallelujah. Jesus, Prince of peace, glory, hallelujah. Amen. Amen. He's good. He's good. He's good. He's good. All right. You can open in your Bibles at this time to the book of Revelation, chapter 6. And if you need a Bible, just uh, lift up your hand and the ushers will pass one off to you so that you can follow along. Now, no promises, but... We should be able to pick up the pace a little bit. Um, I know we've taken our time um, in the first five chapters, but as we go through the tribulation, we'll go through it a little quicker. Um, doesn't apply to us, you know, we're not going to be here. So tonight we'll take chapter six. As you know by now, the book of Revelation divides into three major sections. Chapter 1, verse 19 tells us what they are. John is told by Jesus to write, first of all, the things which were, past tense. And so, chapter 1, the things which were, Jesus Christ, glorified and resurrected, John's you know, testimony concerning him in chapter 1. Then, section number 2, he's told to write the things which are presently, which for John is the church age. So chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, seven letters to seven churches, which applied to the literal churches that existed in Asia Minor then, as well as 
to the scope of church history in its entirety before it was yet lived out there, the things which are, the church age that we find ourselves in as well, the things which are. And then he's told to write part three, the things which shall be hereafter, the things which are yet for the future. Chapters four through the end of the book, metatauta, the things that shall be after this. And now we find ourselves in that third section, the things which shall be after this. And again, that part also breaks down into three subcategories, if you would. Chapters four and five is the church in heaven. That great event, the rapture that we are so looking forward to, our blessed hope, and then the things that will take place immediately following that, and the the act of redemption being consummated, if you would, as Jesus takes the scroll and uh, prepares to loose the seals. And we saw that scene there in chapters 4 and 5, the church in heaven. But now we come into the second part of these future events, if you would. And that is the tribulation on earth. Chapters 6 all the way through 19 of the book of Revelation describe for us what's going to take place during that seven-year period of time when God pours out His wrath on a Christ-rejecting world after He's taken the church out. And the only thing that's left remaining on, on earth are those that have rejected, they've refused the gift of salvation that was paid for in full by the blood of Christ, and, uh, and, and there's nothing left, no redeeming quality, there's no remedy, just as, you know, it says in the Chronicles that before God judged Israel, that there was just no chance of remedy. And, and when the world comes to that point and the church is taken out, there will be a seven-year period of time where God pours out His wrath. Now, the tribulation period that we're studying as we go through these chapters consists really of three sets of seven judgments or blows if you would the first seven are called the seal judgments and as we'll see here in chapter six each time one of the seven seals is broken on the deed that we looked at last week there's a a, a corresponding element of wrath that takes place on the planet in the physical realm and so there's the seven seal judgments And then those are followed by seven trumpet judgments. Seven angels are given trumpets. And each time one of the angels sounds their trumpet, again, there's a corresponding, uh, you know, event that takes place on earth. You know, God's wrath being poured out. And then after the seven trumpets, there are seven final plagues or bowl judgments or vile judgments, if you would, that are poured into the earth. And, And as those complete, it says that the wrath of God is then completed. It's been poured out. And so we have these three sets of seven specific judgments that take place. And and as we go through, there are a few parenthetical passages that kind of give us some insight into a few things that are taking place in the heavens and upon the earth. Um, But we're looking at this period of the tribulation on earth as we go through these chapters here in the book of Revelation. Now, the event on earth that marks the beginning of the tribulation period, we see it You know, right here in in chapter 6, verse 1. In heaven, it's the breaking of the first seal. Look with me, if you would, at verse 1. John writes, and he says, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. 
And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. So the first thing that takes place after the lamb takes the scroll out of the hand of the one who sits on the throne is that he breaks the first seal. And John tells us that when he breaks this seal, that on you know, in, in the spiritual realm, in the earth, he saw a, white, a man on a white horse that was given a crown and a bow going forth to conquer, uh, conquering and also yet to conquer. And notice here as we begin this, because it's something that happens all the way throughout uh, the book of Revelation, is that there are spiritual strings attached to the deeds done on earth. That it's when Jesus breaks that seal that something then begins to happen upon the planet earth. That it isn't, the things that happen on earth are not independent of themselves, but there's something that is outside of the realm of the physical and outside of the realm of the visible that's attached to many of the things that take place. We've got to understand that. Ephesians chapter 6, the apostle Paul is talking to the Ephesian church. And he talks to them about the battle that we're in. And we as Christians, we face a very um, unique battle because, you know, you, it's not a battle that you can fight with the eyes. It's not a battle that you can train yourself physically or equip yourself physically, but it's a spiritual battle. We have an invisible enemy. And so Paul wrote to the Ephesians and he said that we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual wickedness in high places. And then he gives us the exhortation to take unto us the whole armor of God. And he talks about invisible things like the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the buckler of truth, our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. But keep that in mind that Paul says that our war, our wrestling match, it isn't against flesh and blood. There are spiritual strings attached to the things that we face, the battles that we fight, if you would. We often think that, hey, it's my spouse. That's my whole problem. No, 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 listen. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. It's my boss. If I could just get rid of my, it's not your boss. It's higher than that. See, the, the things that happen have spiritual strings attached to them. And we see that illustrated very clearly here, that it's at the breaking of the seal that the rider goes forth. So from a heavenly perspective, the tribulation starts at the breaking of the first seal. But from an earthly perspective, what is it that starts the tribulation? For those that will be left behind, that will not be raptured, that will go through this period of time, what marks the beginning of this very specific seven-year period of time? Is it the rapture? Is that when it officially starts? Or, or when does it start? Well, no, it doesn't start at the rapture. Well, when does it start? We'll see that here in this verse. Now, the first horseman, if you would, and what we have here is the four horsemen of the apocalypse in these first four seals is this man goes forth and he's riding on a white horse and he's going forth with a bow, a crown, and he goes forth conquering and to conquer. 
Who is this personage riding upon this white horse? There are some that have made the innocent error of thinking that this is Jesus Christ. The fact that he's riding upon a white horse, the fact that he's wearing a crown upon his head, that he's armed, and that he's going forth conquering and to conquer, which we know that in the tribulation time, in a sense, that's what God is going to to do. But I suggest to you that this is not Jesus Christ who's going forth at this time. And the reason I suggest that to you is because when Jesus does come back riding upon his horse in chapter 19, it's a much different scene. Let me read to you what it looks like when Jesus comes forth conquering and to conquer. In chapter 19, verse 11, John says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness does he judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, that's a much different description than the pansy, counterfeit, partial imitation that we see coming forth here in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. Now, let me ask you the question again, Bible students. Who is this personage that's going forth on this white horse as this first seal is revealed? The Antichrist. The imitation, if you would. The one who is in place of Christ, which is what the very words Antichrist mean uh, there. it's, It's almost as though this rider on the white horse is some kind of counterfeit Christ. And sure enough, as we look at the whole of Scripture, we understand that the event that starts the tribulation period upon the earth is, in fact, the revelation of the Antichrist. But notice these things that it says about him. It says, first of all, that he was given a crown. That the crown was given unto him. It it wasn't something that was earned or something that he possessed, as it speaks of Jesus, that he is far above all principalities and powers, that he has many crowns. But this crown was granted unto him. The second thing it tells us is that in his hand, he holds a bow. And again, for those of you that are familiar with scriptures, you know that the, the weapon of choice that Jesus goes forth with is what? That's right, the two-edged sword. But do you know what the favored instrument of Satan is? The bow. If you read through the Psalms and you check out what David had to say as he prays and he talks about the, the assault of the enemy, he oftentimes likens unto the arrows and the bow and, and how he uses that. Paul would write to the church again, Uh, In Ephesus, and I wrote it down somewhere, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, and it says there that, that we'll be able to quench with the shield of faith all of the fiery darts or fiery arrows of the wicked one. 
And the preferred instrument of destruction in the hand of the enemy is not the sword, but the bow. And we understand that, you know, in this war that we're in. You know, we, we know what it's like to get hit with those arrows, don't we? You know, you're just going along in your regular day, and all of a sudden this thought will hit you. Whether it be a thought like, how am I going to pay for this bill that's due today? Or this thought of, how, how do you expect that you're going to be forgiven for that sin that you committed those years ago? Or last week, or this morning, or whatever it might be. And those arrows come in out of nowhere. You, you know, everything is just going along just normal, and then it seems like out of nowhere... You're getting hit with something. You don't understand what it is. And it's what it is. It's, it's the fiery darts of the wicked one. The way that he can just penetrate the mind sometimes or just sow a thought into the disposition of our day and just change the whole face of it. But we see this man and he represents the Antichrist. And certainly scripture teaches that the event that starts the tribulation is the revelation of this Antichrist. Who is the Antichrist? He's a man who will come on the scene that, again, starts the tribulation, a man that will have all of the answers to the world's problems. The Bible teaches us that he'll get his power and his authority from none other than Satan himself. He'll have the charisma to win the world over. There will be no division between Democrats and Republicans, conservatives and liberals. All of that will disappear because this man will just seem so far beyond any of those petty skirmishes that divide us politically now. He'll have the oratorical skills of a Winston Churchill. The leadership of an Abraham Lincoln and the likability and the charisma of a Kennedy or a Clinton. But so far beyond anything that we've ever seen in a politician in our lives. He'll be a man who'll be able to solve all of the economic and financial problems that the world, that we see the world delving into right now. And as we'll see tonight, is going to, you know, even go further. He'll be a man with the ability to end the supposed food shortages. And he'll usher in a time of peace and prosperity. And I kind of should put that in quotes because it's really a false peace and a false prosperity. And he'll solve, at least temporarily, this unsolvable conflict in the Middle East, ushering in a covenant that makes for peace between the Jews and the Muslims in the Middle East and also allows the Jews to rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount. The Jews, the Bible says, will receive him initially as their Messiah and the world will hail them as the Savior and he'll have power to deceive. The Bible says that God is going to send a strong delusion So that if it were possible, he would be able to deceive even the very chosen ones of God. Of course, it's not possible because they're not here. You know, the rapture takes place in all of that. But his rise to the forefront and really the event that the Bible teaches will bring him in and begin this period of the tribulation will be this peace treaty that temporarily ends the conflict there in the Middle East. It's the treaty that will most likely allow the Jews to rebuild their temple and will end all debates and skirmishes over territories and lands and positions. And it will usher in this unsolvable peace or, you know, unsolvable problem will be solved that will usher in peace. And it's the signing of that covenant that officially starts the tribulation 
period. Now, and now how do we know that? You know, because I'm kind of throwing all of this at you and you say, well, okay, you know, that sounds good, but, but how do we know this? Well, the answer really comes from Daniel chapter 9. You know, and I'm not going to steal Bobby's thunder because I know he's coming to that portion of Scripture in a couple of weeks and I don't want to, uh, you, you know, teach it to you now and then again. But Daniel basically sees this vision. And Gabriel gives to Daniel kind of an outline of Israel's entire future. And he tells him that there is a period of 490 years wherein God is going to deal with that nation and he's going to complete all of his mission upon planet Earth within this 490-year sphere of time that Gabriel lays out to Daniel. And 483 of those years go by and as Jesus hangs upon the cross, or just before he hangs on the cross, he, he utters these words that give us indication that that clock stops. 483 years into 490, this clock stops, leaving how many years? Seven. There's seven years left. And Jesus said that, that these things to the Jews, he said it in Luke chapter 19, are hidden from your eyes because you knew not the time of your visitation. In this time period of God dealing with Israel and doing everything that he came to do on the earth, it stops temporarily for this time and the church is born. And it's the things which John writes about in chapters 2 and 3, this church age that we find ourselves in right now, where God is, in a sense, building a bride for his son. The age of grace, where our salvation has been paid for in advance, and that we can come to Christ by faith and be saved. But the Bible says that in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, that he, speaking of the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with many for seven years. And in the middle of that seven years, it says that, you know, he's going to do whatever he does. And, you know, this isn't a study of Daniel chapter 9. But that's how we understand this tribulation time. We know that it's seven years in length. And we know that on earth, that peace treaty is the event that marks the beginning of it. So, if you wake up tomorrow morning and you turn on CNN or Fox 5 or whatever it is, just to kind of get a scope of what the day is like, and you get the breaking news... You know, call the church and make sure we're still here. <laughs> and then get saved, you know, because you're in trouble. If you're seeing that on the news, you got problems, you know. Interesting. Other names that the Bible gives for this period of the tribulation are the indignation, which is a, a term that denotes wrath. You know, the indignation. If you're indignant, then you're just, you know, you're, you're loathing and anger. And that's, in a sense, what the tribulation is. It's when the wrath of God comes up in his face and it's poured out upon the world. It's called the indignation. Also, it's called the day of the Lord. The day when God will interject and he'll set things right and he'll bring the balances back to even. And the, the score will be settled, if you would. The chickens will come home to roost. It's the day of the Lord. And it's also called the time of Jacob's trouble. Another name for this period of tribulation. And the reason for that is because the seven years has also with it the explicit purpose of God again dealing with the nation of Israel as an entity. Remember, how many years did Gabriel tell Daniel were determined upon his people? 490. And how many passed? 
483, meaning there are seven years left when God will again deal with Israel. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. And of course, his purpose throughout those seven years is to redeem them, to wake them up, to reveal to them that Jesus was in fact their Messiah so that they might be saved. But they will go through the tribulation time. And so the tribulation, one more thought as we kind of spring into this thing. Something that, you know, hit me a couple of years ago when I was reading through the book of Revelation and reading through this this section where it just seems like uh, it just seems so hard, you know, just to to read the things that are going to happen and and really to think and meditate on them. It's one thing to just breeze through. But when you really like put faces on the people and uh, reality to the situation, it just can almost overwhelm you. And as I was reading it and thinking about it, I I began to kind of understand, maybe uh, is the word, is that when when Jesus hung on the cross, and and, and not just the cross, but when he went through the whole thing, from the time that he went into the Garden of Gethsemane, and and he prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. And and, and then as he was betrayed there by Judas, and then, you know, as as things developed and unfolded, and, and he began to suffer, and then the crown of thorns, and, you know, everything that he went through in that time, culminating with Jesus saying the words, why have you forsaken me? You know, and just kind of, At that moment, we understand that all of the wrath of God was being poured out upon Jesus Christ for your sin and my sin. And I realized as I was reading through this, is that if this section of scripture right here tells us what is the price for sin, then that means that what Jesus went through from the time that he was in the garden until the time that he gave up the ghost had to be at least equivalent to all of the things that happen here during the seven-year period of time. In order for you and me to be taken out because the price has been paid in full for us ahead of time, that means that what Jesus went through had to be at least equivalent to this. And it really gives dimension to the cross, doesn't it? Because we read about the physical things that took place, you know, the crown of thorns and, you know, the, the tearing out of the beard and, and all of those things, the cat of nine tails. And we can relate to those things physically, but we can never get underneath to understand what was taking place spiritually. For the son of God who was with the father in glory from the foundation of the world to say the words, why have you forsaken me? And we'll never truly understand, at least on this side of eternity, because we've never been in that glory. We've never had that fellowship. And yet for Jesus to suffer that separation and that wrath of God being poured out upon him in that time, it goes so far beyond anything that we'll ever understand simply by reading the text as it's given to us there in the Gospels. But my prayer is that perhaps as we go through this tribulation time on earth, we'll keep that in our mind. The dimension of the suffering of Christ that had to be endured in order for you and I to be saved. And so, it tells us here, the seal is broken, the noise of thunder, a white horse, and he that sat upon him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And certainly, that will be the person of the Antichrist. He will gain power and authority over the entire world. The world will give him their allegiance. It's interesting here that it tells us he goes forth conquering and to conquer. And yet, as Daniel describes it in the method by which he'll gain authority, it says that he'll do it by using peace and flatteries. 
Isn't it interesting that peace and flattery can be tools of conquering and conquer? It's true, isn't it? The Bible tells us, beware of the lips of the flatterer. Because sometimes you might be being conquered by the very one who's flattering you or promising you peace here in this way. But we know that underneath the surface, this man Antichrist, he sits in Satan's seat, empowered by him with the desire to gain the worship of the whole world. But his motive is to kill, to steal, and destroy from the very beginning. So the rider on the white horse. In verse 3, the second seal is broken. And we see the red horseman. He says, And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red. And power was given to him that sat thereon, listen, to take peace from the earth. And that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. Interesting, isn't it? How short-lived the peace that Satan offers is. He comes in with peace and flatteries. He gains the confidence and control of the whole world. And then immediately God frustrates the purpose by breaking the second seal. And this red rider goes in there and takes peace away from the earth. Satan's very clever. He promises peace. Just just take a sip. Just take a drink. You'll unwind a little bit. You need it. You deserve it. Just have a couple tokes. Or just pop another pill. It's okay. It's not going to affect you. If anything, it'll just take the edge off of the stress you're feeling. There'll be peace. And he promises such peace. But that peace is so quickly removed the second we give in. And the guilt begins to rush in. And then the anxiety. And then the fear of the bondage of, well, am I going to need to do this again next time? How will I be free from it? And the peace that Satan offers is always so short-lived, isn't it? And here during the tribulation, it will be magnified that much more. It'll be a peace that affects the whole world. And then the removal of peace will affect the whole world. And it tells us that they'll kill each other with the sword. That the covetous heart of man will be at its full. The restraining power of the Holy Spirit within the church will be removed. And man will have nothing but his lust to drive him. And James tells us what lust in the heart of man is capable of. You kill and you destroy. You desire to have and you have not. Peace will be taken and they will kill one another. And then in verse 5, the third seal. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, come and see. And I beheld and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see that you hurt not the oil and the wine. The balances that are held by the rider on this black horse depict trade and commerce. It's for, for all time that that has kind of been the thing. Even throughout scripture in the Proverbs, it talks about using just weights, you know, in an even scale, which would be the way that you would measure and, and, and moderate between commodities and, uh, you know, food and all that kind of thing. And the power of commerce is an incredibly powerful thing. It has the ability to generate prosperity or calamity, to bring forth inflation and depression to determine opulence or starvation. 
And we understand that, you know, we watch it, even even people that aren't finance people these days are somewhat well versed in these things because we understand, well, what's the dollar doing with this inflation and how does it compare to the euro and to the yen and to the other currencies in the world? And you kind of see this this balance thing kind of being thrown up into the air. And with all of the instability in the world economy and all of the money that's kind of just being thrown at it to try to keep it in the air a little longer, it's kind of as if someone took this balance that represents world commerce and just thrown it up in the air right now and it's just kind of hanging there in limbo and we're just waiting to see what's going to happen to it. Well, what is going to happen to the, to the economies of the world? What is going to happen to the prosperity, to the money, to the dollar, to the currencies of the world? What's going to happen? Well, ultimately, it will fall into the hand of this destroying demon in the time of the tribulation. And it tells us that the voice says that a measure of wheat will go for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny and see that thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Now, in the Bible, a penny is the Greek word denarius and it's used to signify a day's wage. You recall from the story when Jesus talked about sending laborers into the field and he agreed with them for a penny a day a denarius and you know the story those that started early in the morning got a penny and those that started in the middle of the day got a penny and those that started in the last hour got a penny and they all got upset because you know hey why didn't we get more than that and you know they started fighting and all this stuff but it set the standard if you would for the penny being the day's wage the denarius being that thing Now, if you plug that into today's numbers, what do you make per day? A measure of wheat is about a quart of wheat. Interesting, isn't it? About enough wheat to make a loaf of bread, enough to sustain yourself with bread. That's all you'll be able to buy during this time with a day's wage worth of food is enough to feed yourself. The famine is going to be great during the time of the tribulation. The economy is going to crash. Things are going to be so bad The people will starve, but there will be no shortage of the luxuries. There'll be oil and wine in abundance, the things that are not necessities, if you would. The things that now people live to kind of have and to, to, to treasure as their pleasure, there will be plenty of that during the time of the tribulation. But the very thing that people need to sustain themselves physically will be in very short supply. They'll starve to feed themselves physically during the period of the tribulation. Interesting. Now, it it, it also is worth noting that during uh, this time, according to Zechariah chapter 5, that there is going to be an upturning, if you would, of the way the world deals financially. If you were here for the prophecy update that we did uh, just before, you know, New Year's, we talked a lot about what's going on in the economy and what's coming. What does the Bible say is going to happen to the to the currency uh, in the world? You know, and, and Zechariah chapter five is very clear that there is going to be a shift. That right now, the United States kind of takes the lead financially. Our economy is the greatest, and the dollar is the reserve currency for the world. But the Bible says, Zechariah chapter 5, that the measure, if you would, the balance, the ephah, is going to be lifted up and it's going to be planted in Shinar, which is in Babylon, in Iraq. And there's going to be a shifting of the powers during the time of the tribulation and a whole upheaval in the world market system. And we see it taking place here at the time of the third seal. Well, the fourth seal and the fourth horseman here in verse 7, it says, And when he had opened the fourth seal, 
I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, come and see. And I looked and behold, a pale horse and his name that sat on him was death and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. Incredible, this pale horse, it tells us that one-fourth of the world's population will be killed under the plague or the blow that this rider on this horse springs. Now, right now, the population of the world is approaching 8 billion. So if you can imagine one-fourth of the world's population being wiped out, nearly 2 billion people being wiped out in one plague here as this rider on this pale horse goes forth death and hell using uh, hunger and death and the beasts of the earth and the sword it's going to be famine it's going to be hell two billion people would be if you took the entire population of canada united states of america mexico central america and all of south america and you just wiped out every living person on all of that massive land just took them out Two billion people dying uh, of this, of hunger, not able to get sustenance of food to have, just die in that suffering way. And we see that it will take place. Well, then in verse 9, the fifth seal. When he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled." Voice of the Martyrs estimates that 176,000 people were martyred for faith in Jesus Christ in 2010. They also estimate that between the years of 2000 and 2009, between 160 and 180,000 people were martyred worldwide per year just because of their faith in Jesus Christ. According to their projection and the the models in the different areas of the world, by the year 2025, it'll be up to about 225,000 people worldwide that are martyred for their faith in Christ. And we don't see that happen here in this country. You know, we, by and large, we have the freedom to gather, the freedom to worship. We never hear, we sometimes hear about someone, you know, being made fun of or ridiculed for their faith in Christ but rarely ever physically assaulted in any way and almost never someone being killed just simply for their faith in Christ. It does happen here, but very rarely. But it does happen in most of the less industrialized world, especially in the Muslim countries where that's the predominant religion. If you ever look at Voice of the Martyrs and they have this area that they call the 1040 window that includes the Middle East all the way over to parts of India and around in that region... And that's basically the hot spot where where the most persecution is, you know, uh, put upon these Christians in in these ways. And there, it's a very common thing. And for them, when they convert to Christ, they almost know that that's going to be their destiny. 
Gospel for Asia, the, the ministry that trains native pastors in India, when they send a pastor to a new area or a new village to start a church, they send them with two things, a Bible and a shovel. And the first thing that he does when he comes to the village is he digs himself a grave because he knows that that's most likely where he's going to end up. At least he's prepared for that destiny. And it's interesting how insulated we can be to the fact of this uh, atrocity that takes place where people really literally laying down their lives physically and eternally for the sake of Jesus Christ. But here we see in, you know, verses 9 through 11, that there is a special plague that's kind of put on pause, if you would, that specifically deals with those that have been slain for the word of God. This doesn't just speak of those that have been martyred throughout the church age and the time that we've kind of been in for the past 2,000 years, but it also speaks of those that are killed during the tribulation period. There will be a great revival Many people will come to faith in Jesus Christ in the moments following the rapture. Think about the people that you're talking to right now that think you're crazy, that think you're a you know, Star Trek freak or something because you're talking about a day when people are going to be taken up, caught up to be with the Lord in the air. And they think you're crazy now. They're listening to you. They're making fun of you. They're ridiculing you. They're scoffing at the words that you're speaking. But as soon as that moment happens and the rapture, you know, and we're taken up at that moment, many of those people are going to come to faith in Christ real quick. The problem with taking that method of evangelism, waiting for that moment, saying, well, I'll get saved if, you know, the rapture happens or when the rapture happens. Is that most likely you will have to die for your faith in Christ after that point. Because it's going to mean that you're going to have to refuse allegiance to the Antichrist and refuse the mark of the beast. And the Bible says that he will have power to kill those that refuse to take the mark. And so you will die for your faith in Christ at that time. So although there will be many people that will get saved, and that's debatable. There are some that that would even go so far as to say that the only people that will be saved after the rapture are those that have never heard the gospel. Because Paul said to the Thessalonians that God's going to send a delusion and cause people to believe the lie because they didn't receive the truth. You could debate about that if you want. But although there will be many people that come to Christ immediately following the rapture, the amount of people that will be martyred for their faith in Christ after the rapture will also be very high. And thus, the Lord here tells those that have been martyred and that are there waiting, they're avenging. He says, wait just a little season longer until those that also are going to be martyred for their faith in me are also gathered and then we'll take care of the whole thing all at once. And so he kind of gives them this parenthetical judgment here. It doesn't happen yet at this time. But it's interesting, isn't it? The fact that this is here in this this section on the judgments when God is judging sin. It means that Jesus endured a similar punishment while he was upon the cross. Even for the very people that killed him and killed his people. Think about that. Jesus was paying for the sin of killing him and killing his people. Jesus was found guilty of martyring his people. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? To just think about the depths of the grace of God that we've received. Well, in verse 12, the sixth seal, it says, I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal. And lo, there was a great earthquake. 
And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Interesting. I call this one the sixth seal. I call this one the great equalizer. He tells us there that there will be a great earthquake. And from the, the outcome that follows that he describes, it means that what happened in Japan was nothing. That was like a little, you know, stub your toe while you're walking down the hall. Just a little blip, if you would, on the radar. That's nothing compared to what's coming. And I don't know what this is. I don't know if it's, it's actually going to be, you know, just like we would understand an actual earthquake to be, or if there's something else that happens. Is this a shaking here? And some have suggested that perhaps at this time, you know, the earth maybe will be hit by an asteroid. That, that a similar thing would happen if, that, if something like that were to uh, take place. You know, if you can imagine just a, a, an asteroid hitting the earth in this way, that, that the first thing that there would be is a dust cloud. Well, first there would be a shaking. I mean, you'd feel it, <laughs> you know. We know that right now the earth, as it stands, is tilted on its axis. It's 23 and a half degrees tilted. And, and as it spins, that there's a little bit of a wobble in it. You know, the Bible says that the earth will reel to and fro like a drunkard. And we, we see that that does take place. And something happened at some point in the history of the earth that caused this tilting to happen. In the polar ice caps, they've kind of found these, you know, creatures that have, the, I think they're the mastodons, that have undigested meat frozen right into them as they're frozen right there into the, to the ice cores there up in the poles. Which means that there was something that happened at some point that was so fast that they were flash frozen where they were with food in their mouths and in their digestive tracts. And some have said, well, this could be the, the, you know, the work of an asteroid or something colliding with the earth at some point in the earth's history. There's a crater that's about a kilometer wide and, you know, maybe it's three miles wide and a kilometer deep uh, somewhere outside of Arizona there in the desert. And they look at that as being a place where, you know, an asteroid at one point hit the earth and they don't know when. They don't know if that's what would actually cause this tilting and uh, these things to happen, uh, you know, that they observe. But something happened that caused the earth to tilt and to shift. And it caused this flash freezing of so much of the creatures and that sent the world into this uh, the situation that we see it in. And what could take place at the time of this judgment when the sixth seal is broken is that there could be a similar collision. The result of that, if the earth was again rocked off its you know, place, off of its axis, if you would, if it was moved, for those where it's night, it would give the appearance of the stars falling to the earth. Because if you can imagine the earth standing still and the stars in their place, and then suddenly the earth is jolted, the stars stay still in their place, but everything on earth turns and it will give the appearance as though the stars are falling. And then the immediate rising of something so, so large of a scale, the dust cloud, perhaps it, the heavens rolled up as a scroll. You'd never see the night sky again. Dust being thrown even into the upper atmosphere, no longer able to see the sun becoming a sackcloth, the moon becoming as blood, barely visible through the, 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 the cloud of dust that exists there in the sky in this way. 
A worldwide shifting of the mountains and the islands, as it says there in that time. And we don't know. I'm speculating purely, you know, because, you know, we don't know what it's going to be. It could just be that God just, maybe he's going to, you know, flick it or something, you know. (laughs) Nothing stands outside of the realm. But what we do know is that the outcome of what takes place when the seal is broken is told to us here in verse 15. It says, and the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Kings, great men, rich men, chief captains, mighty men, bondmen, free men. And everyone on the planet falls into one of those categories. And at this moment, it will be the great equalizer. They will all become one. They will all become sinners in the hands of an angry God, crying out even for death because of the fear that will grip them of the wrath of God. None will be able to hide behind the title or their position. None will be able to buy themselves into safety or absolution or salvation. None will be able to boast of their credentials or their qualifications. No mighty man will be able to save himself with his might. And no free man will be able to declare his freedom before the Almighty God. But they will all together be shaken with fear. And it tells us that they will say, Hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That tells us something. I shared with you on Sunday that every man is born with an innate awareness that there is a God. And this verse proves that point purely. That all of them, it says that they are cognizant and aware of what's going on. And not only that, but they're aware that it's the God of the Bible because they call it the wrath of the Lamb. Think of that, the awareness that they have that they won't admit to it now. But in that moment, in that time when that takes place, they will know certainly what is taking place and who is in control. Lambo, you know. <laughs> Verse 17, it says, For the great day of his wrath is come. And who shall be able to stand? There are some that believe that the church will be here on earth for the first half of the tribulation. But right here at the onset, as these seals are broken and the tribulation begins, the people on earth are quite well aware, and so are we as we read it, that this is the wrath of God that's being poured out upon the world. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, the Apostle Paul tells us, he tells you and me that our believers in Christ, that we are not appointed unto wrath. And that excites me because it, well, you know, it, it breaks me in the sense that this is going to happen. But it relieves me to know that the price for my sin has been paid in full upon the cross of Jesus Christ. And that because of the hope and the 
forgiveness that we have in him will escape this time of judgment that's coming upon the earth. If the church is going to be on earth to go through these first plagues, this first half of the tribulation period, then that means that when Jesus said on the cross that it is finished, that he was wrong. That what he should have said is, it is almost finished. This plus three and a half years, and they'll be squeaky clean, you know. Or when the Bible says that Jesus told his disciples, now you are clean. What he really meant to say was, you are almost clean. You know, three and a half years and you'll be good. You know, No, but the Bible says that he has taken away our sin completely. He said, it is finished to tell us die. We are washed. The resurrection of the dead proves that. The sealing of the Holy Ghost is our guarantee that he will pull us out before the time of the tribulation comes. But you know what gives me even more hope than that? Well, nothing gives you more hope than that. But you know what's hopeful? When we look around today and we see the things that are lining up and, and, and just looking around the world, you know, I'm thinking about just the, 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 just the way the balances of the economy have been kind of thrown up into the air right now. And, and it almost seems as though it's out of control, the way that more money is being pumped in, the way the people that are supposed to be smart enough to handle this are acting like morons, and it's almost as though they just want the thing to hurry up and, and, and crumble. And we see the stage being set so perfectly for all of these things to happen, like never before. And it gives us hope, because it's our blessed hope that we know that he's coming soon. And even the majority of people that are unsaved that we know are aware that these are strange times and even supernatural that things are happening. The earth has never been more ripe than it is right now for judgment and for these very things to take place. And the time is near. And for us, it should give us hope. It's good news. And if you don't know Jesus Christ personally, I hope that you hear these things and it isn't just like watching a, you know, a movie like 2012 or some sci-fi thing, but you understand that everything that God says in the Bible is absolutely true. And he's told us these things ahead of time so that we can be saved. And if you don't know Jesus Christ personally, it's not too late. Because as long as it's the age of grace, the church age... Your sins can be forgiven. You can trade places with Christ. He will take your place in judgment and you can take his place in life. But as soon as that trumpet sounds and the rapture takes place, you've missed your opportunity to enjoin yourself upon that grace. and You will go through the tribulation. You can be saved, perhaps. I'm not going to guarantee it. But it will cost you your blood and the grace that he extends to you now. For those of us that are saved, and you know the, the worship guys can come, we're closing, but for those of us that are saved, understand that Jesus likened the time that's coming unto the night. And he said that the night comes, the power of darkness. And all of Satan's work upon the earth has been culminating into the very days that we're living in. And understand that the intensity of the battle that we're in is going to be stronger in the days that we're facing right now. The strength of the temptations that we face are going to be stronger. The voice of the enemy is going to be louder as his desperation moment comes. The power of darkness within the world is ever increasing as we spiral towards this time when Satan will take his place and rise up over all authority upon the earth. 
And what it's going to require for us, church, is that we hold fast to the promises of God. That we hold on with faith to the things that he said. It's interesting that Jesus, right before he went to the cross, he said these words. He said, the prince of this world cometh, and he has nothing in me. And he said, therefore, I will not speak much with you right now. And it almost seems like that a little bit. It almost seems that things are spiraling out of control. The darkness is rising up. The war is growing more intense. And it requires us to hold on with more faith. We need hope in these days, church. Hold on. Jesus said, when you see these things, look up for your redemption draws nigh. Be ready. And let the things that we're looking at here build hope in you. And if you're not saved, I pray you come to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word tonight. We ask you to let it, let it be a goad in our side. Lord, that when we see those people that we work with, when we see those family members that we know don't yet know you, may it become a burning reality within us that these days are upon us and that your coming is near. We pray for all of them right now, Lord. We ask that you would prepare their hearts. That you would give them awareness of their condition and their need. And that you draw them to the truth. I pray for every person here, Lord, that you would fill them with boldness and spiritual power. That they would speak your word without fear. And that those that they're burdened for would be saved. I pray that we would see the lines drawn and that we would take seriously the call. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. And we ask you, Father, in these last days, build your church and help us to be effective. I pray for any here that are facing that strong temptation. Even those that are discouraged in their heart to the point of saying, I want to walk away from God altogether. I pray, Lord, that you'd give them right perspective. You'd help them to hear the voice of truth. And that your light would pierce through the haze. Give us strength in these last days. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Let's all stand.